This morning I'm going to talk about the passage which deals with the issue of hypocrisy. The scripture reading this morning, which if you were just kind of listening to that and thinking that's kind of a random passage to pull out of the Bible, uh, what that passage deals with is the issue of being a hypocrite. The idea that somehow just because we fulfill some kind of a religious duty per se, that we are okay with God. Uh, The fact is that God is much more concerned with our heart than what kind of sacrifices we may or may not be giving. How does God deal with people who have problems? How does God deal with sinners? How How does God deal with folks who are more or less in open sin? Um... You know, there's actually a pattern that God has. The the scriptures actually reveal to us a pattern that God employs when he starts dealing with people who have uh, just open and flagrant sin in their lives. Here's what God does. God asks them questions. Maybe you haven't noticed this. We'll take a minute here and just kind of look at a couple of passages. Uh, Adam and Eve, they've got... The garden, everything is great, it's perfect, it's wonderful, it, it's, it couldn't get better, possibly. And yet, the devil comes along and dangles in front of them that, well, actually, it could be better if you just eat of this tree, which God told you not to, because he's actually holding out on you. I mean, he's, he's just, he's lying to you. And of course, they fall for that, as we all know. Uh, they no sooner fall for it and they suddenly realize oh, that they don't have any clothes on and so they start covering each other up and, and hiding from one another, which, by the way, is exactly what sin does, puts barriers between us and causes us to hide. God shows up. And the first thing that God does with sinful, this is, the, this is it, these are the first sinners in the whole world. God's first words to them are, where are you? God immediately throws out a question. Adam, where, where are you? Where'd you go? I'm down here. I'm in the garden. Uh, of course, where is Adam? And if you're wondering, by the way, whether or not the fall was actually complete, um, Adam knows that God is the creator of everything, including himself and his wife. God knows. Uh, he knows exactly who God is. And he's hiding in the bushes to get away from God. Really? You think bushes are going to actually, you know, keep God from knowing where you are? So, if you're wondering if his theology went right out the window, that there you go. He immediately had theological blindness and no longer saw God as who he truly was. So, God's first thing is a question. Where are you? The next thing, as the go through the discussion, well, we are over here hiding ourselves because, um, you know, we suddenly realized that we didn't have any clothes on. And um, God's next reaction to them, you can read it, it's right there, verse 11, uh, who told you you were naked? One. Two, have you eaten of the tree I told you not to eat of? Uh, Oh, oh my. These are, uh, um, that, that, you know, that's a really difficult, uh, hard-to-answer question. I mean, now that you've just kind of put that right out there for all the world to see. Uh, well, actually, actually, the truth is, it wasn't me. It was this woman that, oh, by the way, you gave me. Yeah, uh, good, good answer, Adam, there. That, that, that helps a lot. Uh, God looks at the woman and says, 
Okay, since obviously Adam is. So what have you done? What have you done? God is asking, can you imagine God looking at you and saying, what have you done? Oh, we just, we just willed, right? Uh, let me see. The serpent. Yeah, she points, points to him. This is a pattern that we see with God throughout the scriptures. Cain. Uh, Abel brings an offering of his lambs. Cain brings an offering of the ground. God doesn't want an offering from the ground. He wants a, an offering of a lamb. And makes it clear to Cain that that is the issue. And Cain immediately gets upset. And God deals with Cain with a question. Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? What are you, what are you upset about? And, and why is your countenance fallen? I mean, if you do the right thing, you'll, you'll be blessed. You'll have the right thing occur to you. Cain goes out, of course, and murders his brother Abel. And when Cain comes back, what does God do? God asks him a question. Where is Abel, your brother? Where's your brother? Uh, to which, of course, Cain replies, hey, not my day to watch him. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it, is it my job to keep track of where my brother is? What have you done? God immediately confronts him with, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the wilderness. Moses, God calls Moses. All right, I need you to go back to Egypt. I need you to be my representative. I need you to talk to Pharaoh. I need you to lead the nation. You know, God is, we, we know, right? God is, what does Moses think? Oh, no, I, you know, not me. I'm, I'm not eloquent. I can't tell. How does God deal with this? Ask him a question. Moses. Who do you think made man's mouth? Who do you think made the deaf or the dumb or the seeing or the blind? Really? Seriously? Moses, who do you think made you? There are any number of places. We're just looking at a few of them. Jonah. Here's Jonah. He, he goes at him and, well, we all know, right? The first call, like, okay, I'm. You're not getting me to go to Nineveh. I am heading the exact other way. God has to have the fish, give him a little lesson, kind of, okay, 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 out of the belly of the fish, yes, I'll do whatever you want. So he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches, and of course, of course, they all repent. Yeah. Largest repentance, by the way, recorded in all of the Bible. Here's, here's the, most, the most major repentance ever by the most reluctant, bad-attitude pro- prophet ever. And here he is, sitting there, just, oh, so upset. How does God deal with him? Ask him questions. Jonah 4, 4, do you have a good reason to be angry? I mean, seriously, Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry? Verse 10, the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you didn't work and which you didn't cause to grow, which came up overnight and then perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't even know the difference between their right hand and their left? That is, small children. That's how many kids there were. As well as many animals. Shouldn't I have compassion on them, Jonah? Shouldn't I? So when we get to this morning's passage, which is Luke chapter 6, 
and Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and when he asks this question, he's going to ask a very clear question. This is a question that is directed at all of us. This is a question in the sermon. Jesus says to them, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? A speck is like, you know, just a, just a, a little flake or a tiny chip of wood that, that might come when you cut a log. But the log, of course, is the log. So we got one guy here who's got just a little speck in his eye, and we got the other guy who's obviously humorously got the entire log in his eye. And Jesus is like, what are you doing, you people who have this log in your eye? And of course, in the right set of circumstances, all of us will end up having a log in our eye. What are we doing focusing on the speck that's in our brother's eye instead of looking at the log that's in our own eye. We, all of us, if we are not careful, just completely lack all sense of self-awareness. We are so worried about what's going on in everybody else's life and what they're doing and saying and thinking and, and, and what, what's going on there that, that we are just continuously intruding ourselves into other people's lives. And, of course, the log as we're supposedly helping, all the log is doing is just, you know, poking everybody we come to. I don't know if you've ever read Calvin and Hobbes. It's a, it's a comic about a kid and his stuffed animal, and, and uh, the guy who wrote it, is, he's got, he's, they're great anyway. If you haven't read them, you should read them. They're, they're really funny. So there's one where Calvin has put out the lemonade stand, and, of course, he's not selling lemonade. He's, he's actually got a sign out front of, of what he's selling. And the sign says this. Swift kick in the pants. One dollar. Hobbes comes up, says, how's uh, business? To which, of course, Calvin replies, terrible. And, you know, I don't understand it. Everybody I know needs one of these. That is this blazing lack of self-awareness. Surely everyone I know needs a good swift kick in the pants. And, well, wait a minute. Has it occurred to you that just maybe, just maybe, the person around here who actually needs the good swift kick in the pants isn't everybody else? Maybe, maybe it's, um, um, well, I don't know. We can't quite figure out who it is, but it must be somebody, right? Yeah, no. The, the fact is that if we have a problem with... Well, we could go down the list if you'd like. You know, if you have a problem with your spouse, and you have a problem with your children, and you have a problem with your parents, and you have a problem with your coworkers, and you have a problem with people in the church, and a problem with your neighbors, and I don't know, you just go down, whatever the list is, you have a problem with everybody. You know, there's one common denominator between all of those social circles. There's one person that connects all of those, and that would be um, uh, somebody. It's somebody anyway. I'm not really sure who, but... If we have a problem with everyone in our lives, you know, maybe, just maybe, we should start looking at the log that just might be in our eye, as opposed to looking to pick the little speck that's out of everybody else's eye. People come in for marital counseling. We, our marriage is, it's just gone south. That's, our marriage is not going well. Okay, so... You look at the husband and you say, well, what do you, what do you think the problem is? He says, well, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's her. I mean, she does or doesn't, whatever in the world it is. I mean, I, I, 
you look at the wife, you're like, okay, so what do you think the problem is? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's, it's him. I mean, he does or doesn't. Do, okay. So if you want your marriage to go better, in fact, if you want any relationship out there to go better, the first thing you do when the relationship heads south is instead of saying it's clearly them, maybe what we should say is, I wonder what I'm doing to make this relationship not go as well as it should go. The husband should be saying, you know, maybe I'm not loving my wife like I should. Maybe I'm not being as kind and compassionate and treating her like that delicate vessel that I should be treating her. And the wife goes, yeah, it's about time he thought that. No, no, the wife goes, maybe I am not looking at my husband's interests. Maybe I am not showing him the respect and letting him know that I find what he's doing valuable and Titus, remember Titus, the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. It's, it is a taught behavior. You have to, you know, I know, ladies, you think guys are just like an open book, but it does require a little bit to figure out how to adequately and, and appropriately love a guy. So don't think that just because you're ladies, you've got that down. You, and guys, you need to figure out how to take care of your wife. We will do much better at this if we come to it with humility, if we take the log out of our eye and wonder if maybe I'm the problem. Our relationship with each other, our relationship with God, our relationship in this world is all going to go much better if we look to ourselves first. And the Bible says this all over the place, right? Psalm 119.59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to God's testimonies. I mean, I considered my ways. I looked at my ways. I looked at God's testimonies and thought, okay, now that I try to put those two next to one another, I realize that I probably ought to change my ways. Uh, Lamentations 340. Let us examine and probe our ways. Let's look at what we're doing here. And let us return to the Lord. Let's look at God's standards. Let's look at our life and let's... Consider our ways. When we take communion, we don't always read this passage, but the communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, let a person examine themselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We examine ourselves to make sure that our relationship with God is where it belongs. We shouldn't be taking communion if we have some blazing obvious sin in our life and we're just going to take communion anyway, hoping that what? Some kind of ritualistic thing is going to, I don't know what, make us right with God or somehow fix our... It's not. I mean, the passage that was just read, Steve just read for the scripture reading, is one of any number of passages that make it clear that this is not how we get a right relationship with God. In fact, Paul will tell the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3.5, test yourself. Test yourself. See if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. I mean, don't you recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you failed the test? And the test is, am I living a life that aligns with the Scriptures? No one's perfect, but, I mean, at least making the effort here to genuinely try to serve God. Have I tested myself? When trials come and hardships come, Have I stayed faithful? Have I continued with my love of God and my love of the saints, even though it was hard and difficult? Test yourself. 
See if you're in the faith. Make sure. Have some self-evaluation. Sit and think about this for a minute. It's okay. And then we can see if we truly love God, not just when things are going good, but when things are going hard. I mean, this was Job's entire point, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do I only worship God because of what I get out of him? Or do I worship God when things are difficult too? Test yourself. 1 Corinthians 4, back here. Now, these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. To the church at Corinth, who exactly regards you as superior anyway? I mean, where did you get this from? Who, and, and what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, what are you doing boasting as if you didn't receive it? The church of Corinth thought, well, we're the, just the greatest. Well, I mean, they thought so. No one else did. That's Paul's point. Who else thinks that you are the superior church? No, nobody else thinks you're the superior church. You just do. And even if you think that you can tally up what it is that makes you superior, where did you get that from? You have all kinds of spiritual gifts. Good for you. Guess what? They're spiritual gifts. They're gifts. God gave them to you. That doesn't make you superior. It makes you more indebted to God. Please act accordingly. This is the problem. Our, our pride, our ego, our, you know, we think, well, I'm, I'm an expert, even though we're not an expert. And so we fail to see the log in our eye because we're too busy running around trying to correct everybody else. Well, maybe what we're doing is we have just enough self-awareness to kind of think, I, you know, I might actually be the problem, but we can't go there. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to point out everybody else's faults. So hopefully no one will notice mine. Uh, that might work for a little bit. I mean, you might change the topic of conversation, but ultimately that's not going to work. People are going to look and figure that out. Um, maybe, maybe you actually believe you have the gift of discernment. This is my spiritual gift. I, I can see the speck in everybody else's eye. Yeah, that was a gift God gave me. <sighs> okay. Uh, if that's what you think, you really need to look at the log. Um, if we have not stopped and thought, maybe I'm the problem. If you haven't if you haven't had that conversation with yourself, you really need to. Everyone needs to. Don't take that personal. Don't get upset about that. That's everybody in the room. We all need to stop and, and pray and ask God and, and fervently say, am I the problem? What are, what are those faults? What's, what's this log sticking out of my eye that I just can't seem to see? Okay, Lord, show me. And then duck. Because, you know, God might actually show you. And that'll be a pretty teaching moment. Um, Jesus goes on with another question, by the way. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take a speck that's in your eye out. When you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. What's pretty interesting, and we can all attest to this. Oft times, the person who seems most willing to tell you what your faults are, are often the person with the most glaring faults all their own. And you kind of think, I'm not really sure. I, this is the person that I want actually telling me what my faults are, since they seem to have so many glaring of their own. Um, I think 
in the context of the, of the broader sermon, I think Jesus is also directing this right at the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who thought that they were the, the leaders to those who have no true knowledge of the law and are babes and, and that they are the guides of the blind and the instructors. And here's their problem. Their problem is that through their legalism and through their belief that because we know the law and we are keeping the law, therefore we, we have the right to instruct others in the finer points of the law because well, after all, we're clearly so much closer to God because of our keeping of the law. Uh, you know, the law was never given to make anyone perfect. The purpose of the law was not to make the Old Testament saints perfect. So if, and the Pharisees in fact did, legalism, if they thought through legalistically keeping the law that they were therefore closer to God... That is a false premise to begin with. And then to go around and try to encourage everyone else to be as legalistic as they are is to simply take a bad idea and work even harder at it. It, it, It's not the right way to go about our relationship with God. Paul makes this as plain as he possibly could. There's a variety of passages. We'll look at a couple. Romans 3 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become guilty before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He doesn't say through the law, if you just keep it good enough, comes self-righteousness and godliness before God. No, he doesn't. He says the exact opposite. If the Old Testament Israelites actually tried to keep the law, what you would do is spend your entire day down at the temple or, or wherever the altar was at the, at the tabernacle, and you would basically bleed every sheep in the entire country dry, pouring out their blood for your sin. And when you were done killing every sheep in the place, you'd still have to look around and go, well, all right, where are the goats? And then when you're done those, where are the oxen? Because you're just sinful to the core. That's what we are. We're proud and selfish and self-centered, and we think about ourselves much better than we think of our neighbors. And that's who we are. We're covetous. We're envious. We're jealous. And these things just, that's who we are, to the core. The law was given to point that out. And then you come to God and seek Grace and forgiveness and mercy from God. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul will write to the church of Galatia, chapter 2, verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But once pharisaical or legalism sets in, this sets up a system whereby, well, we're going to sit around and judge ourselves among ourselves. And we're going to start evaluating ourselves based on, well, I'm more righteous than you. And I'm holier than thou. And then we, and, and this becomes this competition to see who can be the more holy and righteous. And, and the whole thing becomes an abomination, right? Because... It's built on a false premise. 
No one is holy. No one is righteous. And what we actually have to do is come to one another with grace and humility and kindness and forgiveness and gentleness. And and sure, we're trying to live right, but what we acknowledge is that though we're making the effort, we all fall short, and it's by God's grace. Paul, who I think was, we would consider him a total fanatic before his meeting with Jesus on the, Emmaus, on the, on the road to Damascus, uh, Paul will describe, he describes his life in Philippians 3. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, I mean, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, me, I could do it even more than them. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to my zeal, why I persecuted the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was found blameless. If you wanted to put Paul up and set his life up and put the law down, Paul could go, nope, can't find anything wrong with me. You can't lay a finger on me. But the fact is, that's because we don't look at his heart, but God does. God says it's not a matter of actually committing adultery. It's a matter of thinking about committing adultery. That's sin. It's not a matter of actually murdering your neighbor. It's about thinking about murdering your neighbor. That's sin. It's, it's because our hearts are sinful. And so Paul, of course, ends up concluding here in Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All of Paul's self-righteousness, all it did was just drive him further away from the truth. He just relied on himself instead of relying on God. I want to be found in him not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ through faith. That's the righteousness which comes from God. That's the only righteousness that matters. Paul writes in Romans 9, the problem with Israel is that they tried to pursue the law of righteousness, but they didn't arrive. Why? Because... They didn't pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The minute we set up our relationship with God based on how we are, well, am am I, you know, am I a good person? Am I doing, you know, because I'm a good person and because I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray and, and I have Bible studies and because I do all of these things, therefore, my relationship with God is better than all the rest of everybody else. Okay. Uh. Uh, we should do all of those things. We should. We should do all of those things because of what God has done for us and our heart is to do whatever we can for God. But we don't do all those things to show we're better than everybody else. The minute you do all those things to show you're better than everybody else, don't bother doing them. Don't, don't. You have your reward. If you're just out praying long prayers so that everyone will go, oh, what a great prayer of prayers they are. Look at how much they put on the plate. Isn't that amazing? That, wow. Um, okay. And that's what you're doing it for. If you're doing it for everyone to be just impressed with how great a, a godly person you are, hope that works because that's all you're going to get. This is why Jesus says when you pray, go in your closet and pray and close the door. Don't even let anybody know you're in there. 
And when you give, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I mean, you should give so quietly that no one even knows you're the person giving. This is how we truly serve God. And when we act like that and when we think like that, well, guess what? We have now taken the log out of our own eye. Jesus will go on and say, having asked the questions, he will now conclude, you hypocrites. Hypocrisy is the bane of Christendom, right? I mean, what is it the world always throws at us? You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Sometimes that's actually true. Sometimes we are hypocrites. Sometimes we do kind of get a spirit or an attitude like somehow, well, I know God loves me. I have no idea if he loves my unsaved neighbor. I mean, after all, they're wicked, terrible people. Haven't you looked at how they live over there? I, I, I you know. Well, guess what? God loves sinners. That's why he loves us. We're sinners. And just because God loves us and because we understand the gospel and God has given us his righteousness, until we get out of this world and on to the next one, we're still sinners. And we continue to be sinners. And we have to approach our relationship with the world humbly, graciously. Uh, here's the deal. We're all beggars. We just happen to find out where the bread is. It's over here. God, the forgiveness of God is is open to everyone. We need to take the log out of our eye so that we can speak to the world. We don't want to be hypocrites. Hypocrisy is, well, chapter 2 of Romans, therefore you without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. You, you feel confident to just pass judgment on people? Hmm. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the exact same thing. Just how often do you shake your fist at the car next to you in traffic anyway? Just, I mean, how often do we? Uh, hmm. Might want to be careful about that. Uh, something tells me uh, when we get there on the day of judgment, God's going to roll the tape, you know, and... Uh, See, here you are, and, oh, and here you are. Yeah, you're really upset for them doing that thing, you know, and you lost your sanctification and got, oh, but here you are doing it. Uh, Be careful. Be careful. Uh, If we're going to set a standard, set gracious standards, set set the standard of kindness, of compassion, of forgiveness. Not that we don't have standards, not that we don't call sin, sin, but... Even at that, try to be kind and gracious and loving and offer forgiveness. Um, he goes on in chapter 2, You who teach another, do you not teach yourself? If you preach that people shouldn't steal, do you steal? If you say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? If you abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law. Paul, of course, speaking specifically here to the legalistic Pharisees. You boast in the law, but then you break the law. And by breaking the law, you actually dishonor God. In fact, speaking to the Pharisees, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. And you guys claim to represent God, and yet you do such a poor job that instead of people saying good things about God, they actually say bad things about God. Hypocrisy is one of those things that we really want to avoid, right? James says, if, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror, and then you go away, and you immediately forget what, what you actually saw in the mirror. Um, trying to be like that, right? When we come to the Word of God and we look at what the Word of God says and we see what it clearly says, try to remember 
tomorrow. Try to remember when you go to work. Try to remember when you go home and begin to interact with the people around you. Don't just look in the mirror of the Word of God and then walk away and completely forget what you looked at. And remember, Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful. Our hearts will deceive us. Pray that God open your eyes to your own heart deceit. Just, just pray. One of the things that is most disconcerting about the Pharisees, when you read the Gospels and you look at the Pharisees, you know, the fact is that if you had one of these Pharisees live next door to you, I, I bet they're fairly nice people. I mean, they're just trying to do right. They're just trying to do what God wants them to do. Right? They're just, they're just trying to be righteous. I mean, after all. And I guarantee you, they'd have all kinds of reasons about why they are just being righteous, good people. But the fact is, they were judgmental and condemning. And, but they were completely blind to it. That should make us nervous. Particularly if you feel like, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, if I had to think about all the righteous people in this room, I mean, clearly I'm the most righteous of the bunch. Okay, if you're sitting around thinking that, if you're thinking that you got the best prayer life, or you got, okay, you're the very person that this passage is directed at, right? We should all come to this passage with humility. We should all say, oh, Lord, is it me? Am I the one? Yep, probably. That's what the passage is teaching. We have a log in our eye. Now, he does... Speak great words of comfort. First, take the log out of your own eye. If you do that, then you can actually see clearly to take the log of the speck that's out of your brother's eye. It's a severe rebuke, but the fact is that if we will honestly look in the mirror and face who we are and will have true evaluation of who we are, then you know what? If we go through that painful process, if we, if we actually ask God to open our eyes to the sin of who we are, And go through that, we do come to the place now because we'll be kind and we'll be gentle. And when other people fall into sin, we can come alongside them and put our arm around them and with with gentleness and compassion admonish them and help them. Why? Because we'll recognize that that could easily be me. We won't stand back in high, haunty condemnation. We will come with hearts broken, recognizing that that, that, but by the grace of God, that'd be me. I, I, I had those exact same issues and I know exactly what it is to not owe up to them. So I'm going to try to help this person work their way through this process. How do you know if that's you? How do you know if you've actually kind of gotten through the process? Jesus says, no good tree will produce bad fruit. And on the other hand, bad trees don't produce good fruit. So the question is, what kind of fruit do you produce? Each tree is known by its own fruit. Men don't gather figs from thorns, and they don't pick grapes from a briar brush. Apple trees don't produce pine cones. If you go to an apple tree, you expect to find apples on the thing. If you go to a pine tree looking for apples, you not... The tree produces what the tree produces. So the question is, what do we produce? The good man, out of the good treasures of his heart, brings forth goodness. The evil man, out of the evil treasures of his heart, brings forth evilness. For his mouth speaks from what fills his heart. 
what pours out of your mouth? When you drop that thing on your foot, you know, what, 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 what are the first words out of your mouth anyway? Exactly what is it that comes pouring out of you? And are you working on that? I mean, do you have this conversation with God of, I have so got to be a better person. I have so got to be renewed in my mind. I, I, that's it. I'm memorizing more verses, and I'm going to spend time meditating on those things, and I'm going to fill my mind with the word of God to where I am a renewed person. Okay, you know, if you work really hard at that and, you, and you've spent some serious time doing that because you've recognized just what corruption comes pouring out of your heart, you know what, you're probably on the road to actually being able to help other folks, which is really good because we need all the help we can get. We, we need to admonish and encourage and strengthen and build one on the road. This is what we should be trying to do, and this is what the church exists for. The relationships we have here in the assembly are for the exact purpose of encouraging us to be better believers. Not perfect. No one's perfect. There's not a person in the place perfect. And we're not here to somehow show off our perfection because we don't have any except in Christ. But we are here to encourage and to admonish and to strengthen and to be, if someone falls into sin, we're there to come alongside and say, come on, we... We, we can help you do better. And the folks who've taken the logs out of their eyes, which, by the way, we have a number of people in this assembly without a doubt have done that, um, we can strengthen and encourage and build one another up. That's, that's what Jesus is going with here. Get, get the log out of your eye. Beg that God show you your sin. And if you're married, just ask your spouse. They'll, they'll fill you right in and it won't be any problem at all. And... Um, when you get back to talking to them afterwards, you can, you know, have some humility and confess and see if you can get that straight. That is what God genuinely calls us to do, though. We do have to have humility. We have to be able to see the log. Why? For the love of the brethren, so that we can actually help other people. We are here to help one another. And so pray that God will let you... Be. In closing, here's Peter, right? Big, bold, brash Peter. Jesus says, you know, before the night is over, before the, before the rooster crows with the coming up of the sun, you're going to deny me three times. Absolutely not. Not me. I'm me. Hmm. Okay. Do you know that there's almost an hour break between his first two denials and his third one? He's got an hour to sit around and... and Think about the fact that, wait a minute, Jesus told me I would deny him three times. Never crossed his mind. And at the third denial, Jesus looks up and connects with Peter eye to eye. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Now, you know, Jesus could have avoided that whole situation for Peter. Jesus could have sent Peter back to Galilee. Jesus could have done any number of things to help Peter not go through that. Nope. That's exactly what Peter needed to do. Peter needed to stop trusting Peter. So pray that God will give you the moment you need to be of use to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would give us hearts of humility. May we humble ourselves so that you don't have to. Help us, Lord, to see your word and to see the truth and to see ourselves so that we can come and 
and to ask for your grace and your mercy and we can be compassionate to one another. Lord, may we all strive to get the log out of our own eye, to assume that uh, it's probably us first and make sure that we have dealt with our own issues before we try to deal with others. Help us to have your love and your compassion and may we have some genuine self-awareness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.